The third paper in this panel is about early Stalinist sources and is by Jonathan Waterlow, Merton College, University of Oxford. The paper is entitled, But There Was No Humour in the 1930s, Researching Around the System. I research um, popular humour in the Soviet Union. So you can see from the title, there was no humour in the 1930s, that my experience trying to pursue this was at times challenging, to say the least. My first question, I suppose, well, actually, to give you an outline of what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a bit about what I've tried to do and then explain how I've managed to do that. Um, first of all, humour did exist in the 1930s amongst ordinary, in inverted commas, meaning people without positions of great power or influence. Amongst those people, it very much did. But it's not remembered. And why might that be? I think partly it's a, a an issue to do with uh, his historians and their approaches, and that's humour isn't a very serious thing to study, perhaps, because in its inherent nature it can seem frivolous and uh, uh, non-academic. Um, a lot of the more memorable events related to the 1930s are negative and they're vividly characterised and become uh, intimately bound up with our, our thoughts and knowledge about this period. Um, but humour did exist. There's anthologies which exist, they're published collections. They're, they're not actually very useful if you want to understand who said something, when, where, and try and work out why. Um, and a lot of them were written by emigres um, and some research uh, recently by a, a Russian historian who works in the literature and uh, the literature archive has shown a lot of them are probably just made up by emigres as well. Um, there's contemporary memories that uh, they, they will recall specific anecdotes. Uh, that's the, the Russian term basically meaning a kind of set-piece joke. Um, and there's archival evidence, and mostly it's been the archival evidence that I've wanted to look at. Um, the reason it's not remembered, I think, is that humour doesn't really function in a singular and straightforward way. It's doing several things at once. Um, especially in extreme social circumstances, it can have uh, many other uh, reasons for being used and effects that it can cause. Um, it's got important social functions which I'll go into, and it's the functions and the products of the humour rather than the fact people were trying to say something funny which is remembered. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is it's not remembered for itself. So what were these social functions that um, I'm suggesting? In the first place, I'm talking about a coping mechanism. Second, creating what I, I call trust groups. Third, it affirms the identity of, uh, of people who are speaking these jokes and sharing them. And um, proverbial dissemination, which is intentionally pretentious. I quite like the sound of it, um, but I'll explain what that is when we get to it later. So in the first instance, um, it's a coping mechanism, which is kind of like gallows humour, to boil it down. The unknown and the unchangeable are frightening, and this is literally in gallows humour. If you're on your way to the gallows, you're going to die. Um, so you can't do anything about that. So why is there humour in this situation? It's because you can relativise the danger, relativise the situation by trying to reassert your power to belittle um, that which is frightening you, because you can, you can say it. It doesn't change anything, but it can change how you feel about it. And this can be usually done because it's a joke, you're saying it to someone. You can relativise the fear and uh, the difficulties of the unchangeable by sharing it between each other. Um, so gallows humour 
an example of which would be in Germany they have one car for each worker but here in the Soviet Union we have two we have the NKVD's Black Raven and the ambulance you see how that might work and what's going on here I think is a restoration of understandability as I call it which is replacing the unknown and contradictory the frightening into a genre where it's not expected to make sense it's meant to be ridiculous it's meant to be unreal in humour and this adds a sense of uh, the familiar and therefore it's com more comforting as a genre it doesn't explain the facts but it attempts to explain them away the second thing is trust group creation um, this is how I want to describe social groupings in Stalin's 1930s. I particularly don't like the idea of looking at a public and private divide, public and private spheres. I don't think those were realistic categories that existed. And to be honest, I don't think they're a very useful way to study pretty much any society. Um, and looking at humour suggests you can see where the, the borderlines of trust could exist. In exchanging humour that's possibly diffi uh, difficult and dangerous, you're exchanging a token of trust. It's a symbolic lowering of your guard and you're saying to somebody, I'm prepared to trust you and I'm going to say something that could be dangerous. Um, and humour is a really good example uh, of this because it's dangerous and because if someone's going to find it funny they need to share your outlook to a certain extent to get the premise. If they don't get the joke then you've probably screwed up in who you're trusting. Um, however, one of the things that I discovered from my research was what I couldn't do. What I wanted to do was try and trace the contours of these trust groups of where were they most strong? What was the most outrageous stuff that could be said? Was that said amongst close friends in the workplace? Could it only be said amongst family groups and so forth? And where did they break? Where did the, the points of fracture occur? But to be honest, I, can't, I don't know. Most of the, um, the sources that I found uh, are all about, of course, where something goes wrong. Success is essentially invisible because if there is a strong trust group, it's not going to turn up in archival sources. Maybe it's in diaries, but finding uh, sufficient uh, material in, in that way is difficult, especially as the, uh, the People's Archive, which was a, a great repository for um, personal diaries and effects, has run out of money, um, as you can see in some of the information packs. So there's a danger of distortion in trying to look at the archival evidence available. and. Um, I can only try and infer via absence the locations where perhaps trust was stronger. Um, I think what, we're, what we would be looking at, this is my massive metaphor of a plasma ball, you may remember these, that we're looking at something so complex that each person is in the centre of this and they've got these tendrils coming out for it, uh, someone who knows someone who knows someone and maybe you, maybe that's their line of trust, that's a different trust group and of course people have many different groups like you have many different friends some of us do and um, the danger of distortion though is that if you touch one of these suddenly it looks more important than it is suddenly it looks more powerful and more um, more significant that's the point of my strained metaphor um, third in identity affirmation um, here's an example and this is more a sarcastic comment than a joke in the USSR there are four categories of people and let's go with the translation roughly people who have access to the elite uh, Tarksin stores uh, people in the Order of the Red Stars the Closed Workers Cooperative and the somehow or others and obviously in this what's being suggested by a contemporary um, is that we the speaker we are the somehow or others we're trying to get by 
And this is interesting because it's a contemporary description of classes of people. It's not Marxist because it's not the official talk of uh, workers and so forth. But what's interesting is that it's, it's still economically defined. It's about access to goods. So we have something that's kind of Marxist but not using the official rhetoric that's being shown just through an off-the-cuff comment. And what, what's important here is it's a reassertion of a sense of self. It's saying they are those people, we are these people, and this is how we see how we work. Uh, in, in this situation. Now, to return to the um, exciting proverbial dissemination, um, this is how people manage to communicate how they could live and guides to wend your way through the confusing reality of the Soviet Union under Stalin. So we have the slogan, he who does not steal does not eat, which obviously is changing the one, he who does not work does not eat. The eight hour working day is from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. You could have advice coming through here. The quieter you go, the quieter you are, the further you go, or the further you go, the quieter you are. And a second throwaway comment, go to lunch. They're burying Kirov today. Lunch will be good. Or as some other people said, maybe they're going to serve up his brains, rubbing their hands and going off to the canteen. Uh, the point here is that like proverbs, because this is what jokes are rather similarly like, they're, they're witty comments that are... Um, they're punchy, they're self-contained, they're often ironic stories or pithy phrases, and they're designed to convey lessons about how the world works. And this, I think, we can see through humour as a way in which you could transfer this knowledge between um, groups of people, and it shows their worldview and how they try and explain it to other people. Um, so we're talking about how people managed to live through the 1930s. Um, why have I chosen humour? Well, I think humour, isn't that pretty? Um, is one prism through which we can look at this, this particular issue. If we've got everything coming through um, into a person's interpretation, which is that prism, it's split up into all different kinds of colours. People react to things in different and complex ways individually. But we can look at this prism uh, if we take humour as just one example, because it accepts, it's letting ideology, if that's what the, the first line coming through is, it accepts it and it lets it through. But it's retaining its agency, it splits things up, and you can look uh, with different shades and nuance at each part of the ideology and the state that you're living in. It alters the perception, it's breaking it up, as I say, um, and it blurs definitions, and it's adding colour. It's not black and white, obviously, um, and I want to understand how these prisms worked and how people um, interpreted with greater definition their lives and uh, what's going on. So that's my project. But in practice, just try telling the archivist that. It's not, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, even if I have the, the verbal dexterity in Russian. Um, so my first tip to everybody is, on matters of your tema, i.e. Your, your topic, your theme, your hypotheses and your argumentation, ignore the archivist's lectures to you. Um, it doesn't mean ignore their advice if they say this is useful, this is useful and so on. But when they tell you, no, you can't do that, there is no humour in the 1930s, you want to look at Brezhnev, that's, you know, that's when it was funny, oh, you foreign idiot. <laughs> ignore them, they really don't know. <laughs> and ignore your Russian friends, they might be nice Russian friends, but if, if they have a point, listen. But mostly, the number of lectures I've had just in bars from people who've gone, oh, you're studying, what are you studying? Oh, you need to know this and this and this. No, I don't, actually. Um, when you go in, change your tiama to something which is Russian. 
<laughs> so this means you go in and you'll get the best help, you'll get the best attitude from the archivist because they, they think, oh, you're very serious, Nicholaviek, you know. So you, if there's no such thing as humor in the 1930s, don't talk about humor. So what did exist, they accept, is popular opinion, protest, reactions, svodki about the mood of the people, these summary reports and so on. So couch what you're doing in very broad terms. And even if they're kind of stereotypical and if they're boring, um, I remember speaking to Dan Healy, who's in the audience, hi Dan, that when he was researching his book on, um, uh, on homosexuality and revolutionary Russia, to try and get at the kind of materials he wanted, he had to order a lot of other material to be cautious that the archivist wouldn't take a, a look askance at the idea of ordering um, cases where the trial is about sodomy. And sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to kind of disguise what you're doing. Because these archivists can be very helpful, but they can also be um, the gatekeepers who don't want you to approach things in certain ways. Am I being condescending? Well, I'm, I'm worried I might be, but I think it's actually a fairly balanced approach, because they're going to be condescending to you. <laughs> say, you're a foreign idiot, you don't know what you're doing, you don't understand what's going on. So if you go, yes, you're absolutely right, you nod and you smile and you say, thank you very much for your advice, and very often it will be useful. But do what they want, and then you'll be able to do what you want. Um, you need to think kind of sideways about how to approach something like tracing non-conformist opinion. Um, because if it was, if you want to find something out, you might want to ask the question, if it was a punishable thing that you're trying to look at, what was the usual charge? Because in the indexes, in the OPC, if you want to find something out, you might just see a criminal case under and then the code in the criminal code. So for me it was um, some maybe useful was 5810, the anti-Soviet agitation. Uh, or in Ukraine, uh, as it might be useful to know, it's Article 5410. Um, and sometimes when things were not going so well and I couldn't access what I wanted, I would just order up batches of cases which were prosecuted under these particular articles, uh, which is frustrating but at times it may turn up things and it's something to do with your time if you're, if you're having trouble working out what to do next. Um, in terms of official propaganda, it's worth bearing in mind that what was being overly emphasized in the official press um, is a clue to what might be going on, as in it, the opposite might be true. If people are talking about there's great harmony between the different nations of the USSR and really, really going on about this, probably the opposite was true. And it, it's worth that to get a sense of, um, of what opinions were by inverting it. Um, and do remember that because of the amount of duplication in amongst the various uh, bodies of party and state, that you can look in the fondi of uh, the collections of different agencies, because maybe the, N the NKVD had something, but maybe also the party had something, maybe uh, the trade unions had something, and in fact they all, they all do, and they, they duplicate these things. Even if you look on uh, the records of meetings um, in uh, the, the transport sector, then maybe you'll find a lot of very juicy material you wouldn't expect. Now, turning to secondary and published things, Russian scholarship Unfortunately for my project, it was pretty useless um, because this kind of approach, this sort of social history, is not the vogue at the moment. It's, uh, they're still more interested in high politics um, and in whether Stalin was a good or a bad thing. 
um, it often lacks quite a bit of nuance and I think this is simply because it's still a generation who've been schooled not it's not about them being Marxist so much as being a generation who want to talk about certainties and absolutes um, and Consequently, there's a great love of the generalization and the thunderous black and white view. Um, sometimes they can be useful, but if you think you're reading something which sounds really far too generalized, um, if not just very silly, you're probably right. I, I had to ask um, some of uh, my, my supervisor and other people going, am I, just, am I really bad at Russian? Am I missing the point here? And they're no, actually, it's, it's not very good. Um, on the other hand, footnotes in these articles can be absolutely vital. They're a guide to where the kind of material you want to look at and deal with on your own terms is going to be. And there is a new generation of Russian scholars emerging who um, are writing very interesting um, stuff, which is, it would be wrong to think that what we're doing is the only way to do history and that it's only about social history now. Um, the kind of Fitzpatrick uh, children that many of us might be. Um, but I think the points that I just made do hold true in a general methodological approach. But this is changing, and it's well worth checking out Russian scholarship that's, uh, that's kind of the new things which are coming out now. Um, you should, I think, before going, you should prepare an analytical framework or an approach before you leave, and I'm very glad that I did. Because you need to have some idea, not just of what you want to look at, but if you're going to look at these sources, how are you going to deal with them? What do you think they might have? What sort of uh, reactions are you going to have if they say point A or point B? I don't think, though, that you should come up with too many hypotheses before you go away, because you can get very attached to them and then be rather upset if they're turned uh, on their heads. And if you expect to find certain things, then you're more apt to close your mind to seeing other avenues that might crop up from the source material. You can build a prism, I was talking about, but don't try and predict too much where the detail is going to fall here when the light's refracted. It's always worth trying to react to the sources and feed them through your interpretational approach um, without trying to make them fit conclusions that you've already drawn. Um, where to do it? Uh, well, keep your options open. I went to um, St. Petersburg then I went to Moscow and I went to Kiev and I thought first of all St. Petersburg I would follow up on some things that Sarah Davis did looking at popular opinion but that archive, the party archive there is incredibly secretive and whereas Sarah would get 10 out of 12 things she orders I would get 2 and it took ages to come, everything was secret, the archivists were really annoyed I was trying to see stuff they didn't want me to see. I thought Moscow might be the hardest but actually it was the richest, mostly in, in Moscow archives um, if you can see something exists, you can see an office, you can probably order it and you'll get it. I thought Kiev would be even better because um, the archives are meant to be more open there, it's no longer Russian um, until the election rec recently of, U of um, Yanukovych. Um, there was a much more open approach to uh, foreign researchers. But actually this was also contrary to my expectations because there wasn't a lot of material on the 1930s. and. Um, uh, a large amount of the special sector materials I wanted to see uh, were in Remont, as so much. <laughs> um, they're probably being translated into Ukrainian, which is uh, a great example of, of nationalism uh, causing some issues for research, because it's, they want to translate the guides into Ukrainian uh, so that you can then access the Russian documents. Um, if you're working on a new topic, 
it's good to have some backup plans as well. Be prepared to flex. Be prepared to think, well, okay, I can't do my thing on humour. I'm glad I could, but if I can't, then what I'm studying is popular opinion, and that's the important thing. Now, part of the point of this conference is we're looking at mutual support. Email academics for their input, because they'll often give you so much help, so much generosity that, that I've, I've received and I'm very grateful for. Remember, this isn't a competition. It's about enriching knowledge and sharing that, not just with your potential readers-to-be, but with each other. Uh, consider the example, I'm not allowed to say much here because if I put this on iTunes I'll get done for defamation, but consider a, a certain historian who ended up in the press in a bit of a, a slander thing recently. That's not really the attitude to have because you end up isolated and you're not then engaging with the academic community and you're not gaining much for yourself. Um, there's mutual benefits in exchange and discussion um, and you can have a stronger, much more productive academic community um, as a result, and there's no need either to have generational divides between people, and that is part of the reason we're all here, and I think that has been the most rewarding part of the research that I've done so far, has been the help and interaction with, uh, with other people. So that's all for me. Thank you.